First point to remember is that every person who wishes to be an advocate will start off being unqualified. We all have to start somewhere. I'm Beatrice Collier. And I'm Georgina Wolfe. And this is the Pupillage Podcast brought to you by Middle Temple and us, your hosts. It's a podcast for anyone considering a career as a barrister, from students at school, university or on the law conversion or bar course. It's for those contemplating a career change later in life and wondering what it might entail. And it's for the army of pupillage applicants out there, from those applying for pupillage for the first time to the battle-weary, giving it just one last go. We know that at times the search for pupillage can seem daunting, so in each episode we talk to junior barristers, fresh from their own pupillages, members of pupillage committees, senior barristers, QCs, judges, masters of the bench and lots of other guests and ask them for their advice, what to do, what to avoid and how to succeed. For most practice areas, being a barrister is all about being an advocate. Chambers will expect you to show them that you are genuinely interested in advocacy and that you have the ability to argue persuasively. How should you go about acquiring that experience? Our guests this episode chat to us about all things advocacy, from first steps through to prestigious moots. We hope this episode inspires you to look for every opportunity to practice getting up on your hind legs and making a case. Who better to kick off than someone who knows all about advocacy, not only from his own practice, but also from teaching? We spoke to the Dean of the Inns of Court College of Advocacy, James Wakefield. Welcome, James. Thank you very much for coming to be our guest on the Pupillage podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes, so I was called in 1993 and um, practised at the bar in the Midlands in general common law, mostly families, a bit of civil uh, and crime, not very often. Uh, Then after uh, a while in the late 90s, I began teaching on a bar course in Nottingham and then I ran a bar course which lasted for a few years called Kaplan. And now I lead the Council of the Inns of Court and that's the body that helps coordinate the work of the four inns. And I'm also the Dean of the Inns of Court College of Advocacy, which focuses on training practitioners uh, in advocacy. And uh, I I love talking to students about advocacy. Can we go right back to the beginning? And can you tell our listeners, what is advocacy? Oh, that's a very good question. What is (laughs) advocacy? I think in this context in particular, advocacy is um, presenting on behalf of another. And so it's saying something to persuade a tribunal or, uh, you know, earlier stages, uh, a a judge of a competition, uh, that your client or your argument is the right one uh, to be preferred as opposed to somebody else's uh, client or argument. And so it's persuading a court about somebody else's situation. Uh, A question that we get quite often when we're talking to students is what's the best way of getting some advocacy experience when I'm not yet a qualified advocate? Yes, and and I think it's really good to encourage everyone. Everyone has to start somewhere. And and also to encourage people that you can start and be quite bad, that's okay. And I think one of the... Um, the markers for yourself working out whether you want to be an advocate is, is whether you have a go at some advocacy and even if it goes wrong think, think well I'd like to have another go and get better and so it's give yourself lots of uh, chances, opportunities and try again and again and again don't think you have to be perfect from the beginning that's a really that's a I think that's a brilliant tip I'd never thought of that myself and I wish I wish someone had told me that <laughs> but it does it comes over time and you begin to learn your own voice and your own personality as an advocate and uh, and it does take a while and you begin to perhaps master your own responses to the stresses of the situation and and then bec- and they bother you less I suppose as you practice and you realize okay well the world didn't end yes. and it was actually quite fun well I, I think most people who when they start doing advocacy uh, and and really for the rest of their careers are nervous but when you start you're particularly nervous and that isn't a sign it's not for you um, it, it's a sign just that you're nervous it's a physical reaction to the stress and so working through that and then over time learning to manage and indeed ride the nerves is something you'll start to master. So in terms of your very beginner beginners, what sort of things would you suggest that they might try right at the outset? 
most people who I meet who are very beginner beginners have tended in one way or another to have already started. So they've started to think they want to be an advocate because in some context or another they've discovered they like speaking in front of other people. And so I would encourage you to pursue those those opportunities. So if at um, uh, sixth form, you know, you were uh, involved in debates or discussions in your tutor group and so on, that's great. And if you're one of the vocal ones, that's fantastic. If then at uni you get involved in societies and you may take a leadership role in a society or a discussion or in your tutor groups, you're one of the more you know, vocal ones. Keep finding those, those small opportunities, so small things to have a go at being in front of others and saying something is how to get started. What you're saying then is that before we get to a point at which you're persuading a court or um, a judge in a moot, just have a go at persuading a group of people of your point of view or perhaps just have a go at expressing a point of view. I tell you the first steps are just speaking in front of others. That's the first step. And then you'll, you'll find situations where you can then start to persuade and so on. But just opening your mouth in front of others is, is the first step. So once you've done a bit of persuasion and you've found that actually you quite enjoy it, what is the next step to getting some more formal advocacy experience? I think one of the best ways then to build up is to, is to get involved with debating. And uh, lots of people will have had the, had the opportunity to do that at school, but lots of people won't. And so if you can uh, find a debating society at uni, um, or if there isn't one, start one, and um, just go on the internet, you can find some simple rules of debating and have a go. One of the glories of debating is that you have a proposition, you know, this house believes that capital punishment should be reintroduced or something like that. Um, But... Uh, you don't have to master any law or anything like that. So you've still got to construct an argument, um, but you've got the freedom just to use your imagination to construct that argument without the constraint of law and legislation or cases or anything like that. Uh, one of the other advantages is that you'll be against somebody. And so they'll be saying one thing, you'll be saying another, and, and that's a totally different form of advocacy than just presenting without an opponent. So I think debating is a fantastic way of having a go. Yeah, I did a lot of debating when I was at law school and one of the other brilliant side effects of it was that it showed me that I could talk about something I knew nothing about if I reduced it back to first principles and walking into interviews for pupillage where I would often get questions that I'd never thought about before it was a huge boost to my confidence and actually meant I could present logical, coherent arguments Um, so I highly recommend debating to everyone. Well, well, I think debating is really good because you'll often have propositions you disagree with. And so then having to construct the opposing argument is really very helpful. And, and it's often the case in interviews, you'll be asked for your view on something and then um, a moment later asked to persuade the interview panel the opposite. <laughs> uh, and so it's a really useful exercise. Good practice for being a barrister too. Yes. <laughs> uh, you mentioned rules, James, rules for debates. And, and, and obviously, as you said, I'm sure they can be found on the internet. But is it possible to explain briefly what, what those rules are? Yes, yeah, so they, they do vary. But it basically um, sets out the amount of time each side is allowed. So you'll either be debate, debating as an individual on each side or as a pair on each side. And so you'll be allowed a certain amount of time to make, the pro- make out the proposition if you're proposing the motion. Uh, the other side will be allowed a certain amount of time to respond to it. And then there may be the opportunity to then reply to that response. There'll be rules about whether or not the questions are allowed from the opposing side or interventions or challenges. And there'll be rules about whether the person who's judging the debate um, is, uh, is going to ask questions and whether time's allowed for that and so on. So it's generally housekeeping rules, if you like. As to what actually goes into the debate, there are very few, few rules around that. It's really for you to construct something as best you can. How much preparation time would, would you have? Oh. Does that vary as well? I think the amount of preparation time uh, varies hugely, and I think there are two forms of debate. W- one is where um, you'd be well advised to spend a couple of hours in preparation, just sitting and r- reading around and really thinking your way into the number of arguments around a proposition. There is a sort of form of speed debating, which I think is a great exercise as well, where you're given a very short amount of time to prepare a proposition, you know, five minutes, and, um, uh, and then you go in and you really go for it. And the, the beauty of that is, again, it, it lends itself to, to having a go. 
yeah so you, you can't beat yourself up about not having not not having sought out the winning argument exactly. in, by researching it in advance yes yeah. so you just you just have to get up and have a crack and, and i'm sure that you will find that some go really well and others you crash and burn and you just get used to that that's right and watch other people have yeah. exactly the same experience yeah excellent so you've done some debating what else might you do for your advocacy experience so I think one of the things, if I was on a pupillage committee, I would expect to see, certainly for a law undergraduate, is that they would have, they'd had a go at mooting as well. And what is mooting? So mooting is a, is a step on from debating. Um, it's where you have a, a, a scenario, a written scenario given to you, which usually got some factual basis to it, but there'll also be some law to research around it. And so the facts are usually given, so you can't argue necessarily about the facts. So if it says that it was a burglary, then it was a burglary. Um, But there'll be some law given to you, and then you've got to try and research an argument around the law. And somebody will be trying to persuade the law. It's usually done in an appeal context, so somebody will be trying to appeal a, a judgment of an earlier court, and another side will be responding to that appeal. And so where, whereabouts can you find opportunities for mooting? Would that be something that you'd expect people to be able to find in their universities? Yeah, so I think the majority of law departments at universities will have um, sort of mooting society or mooting competitions. It's my experience that some uh, institutions have just too many opportunities almost. You could, you could join in uh, endless moots and some very, very few. And so, again, it might be a situation where you have to search for it or it might be a situation where you have to organise it yourself. And I'm always impressed with people who um, found themselves in that situation and they get on and organise a mood uh, and go for it. I think what I find unimpressive is when somebody says, but there wasn't much mooting at my university. And I say, well, why not? Because there's nothing to stop you from doing it. Uh, And so get on with it. Again, you can Google and there's some books out there and find moot problems and uh, moot rules. It's very straightforward to get going with it. So really, there's there's no excuse. Is that what what it comes down to? For people who are serious about a career at the bar, then they need to be able to show that they've, they've done some mooting. Yes, and I think the more the merrier, but you also need to balance that. My strong view is that you also need to have a life. And you need to enjoy yourself as a student and socialise and do all the good stuff as, stuff as well as your studies. And so it's not that you've got to be mooting 24-7 or have endless, endless victories within your CV. But what you do want to be doing is being able to demonstrate to somebody who's reviewing your CV in the future that the that, that advocacy theme has been there uh, f- for a, a while. One of the things we often see on pupillage application forms is under the section hobbies and interests, people put down mooting. And although you may thoroughly enjoy mooting, I think it's a bit of a stretch to describe it as a a hobby or interest when it's actually part of your professional experience. And I'm always a bit disappointed. I'd much rather see that somebody has a passion for reading the novels of John le Carre or some other actual interest rather than talking about their mooting career. Yeah, I agree. In in fact, virtually anything other than mooting (laughs) is an interest. Yeah. Well, we've spoken about debating and mooting, James. Are there any other avenues that you can advise our listeners to explore if they want to acquire some advocacy experience? Yes, I think an area that some universities help students get experience in is areas like pro bono or free representation. So it's great if you have those opportunities, and sometimes they can be limited and you can't have those opportunities, but it's great to have a go. Because there's nothing like meeting with a real human being who has a real human problem, and to one degree or another you've got to help advise them uh, on on, uh, how to try and move forward. So that is a very, very different form of advocacy, uh, where you're trying to persuade to begin with the person you're helping and then possibly another institution you know a creditor uh, that that sort of thing or indeed a tribunal in certain circumstances so they can create great opportunities for you so anything like that and I'm a big fan of students taking years out either before bar school or after bar school or both I think you can start the bar too young for some people but I my experience for example was between uni and bar school I worked um, for a year with Down and Outs in Dublin and my pupillage interview the one with uh, the the chambers with which I was successful um, my interview was all about that it was all about how do you deal with people who smell 
how do you deal with people who can't explain what their problem is? And I had lots to say. Yes. Uh, whereas prior to that, I had nothing to say on those things. Absolutely. I think, yes, I think that's uh, really important for people to understand that the preparation for your pupillage application is a process and it's not just about having something to put on a piece of paper it's about developing yourself as a potential barrister I I agree entirely I always think chambers are have one question when they're interviewing and that question is always is this person going to be the best pupil every question they ask is that question and so if they ask you about your mooting or if they ask you about your um, year out, they're asking you, asking so they can tease out whether you're going to make the best pupil. And it will give you confidence as well that you are going to make the best pupil. Yes, that's really, that's uh, an excellent point. James, are there any things that you wanted to tell our listeners that we haven't asked you about or we haven't covered? I think the thing I'd like to say is that being an advocate is, is a great, profession it really is and the sooner you can get stuck in and start to enjoy it and go through the (laughs) highs and the lows and it works and it doesn't work the better because you'll then as you were just saying you will then be preparing yourself for being a good advocate you're preparing yourself for enjoying it and so get that theme in there for your own sake as well as for the sake of your cv i think that's true because i think that when when candidates are being interviewed something that all barristers will recognize is what you've just described that's to say the highs the lows the exultation when it went well the doing it all over again in your head afterwards and doing it better all of this is something that is immediately recognizable to people who might be interviewing candidates and when that is express back to an interview panel they instantly sort of feel oh yes okay this is someone who understands what it's like and it's it's a difficult thing to do to achieve that to be able to create that connection with an interview panel and this is as you say one way in which you can try and achieve that one of the questions i've often asked in pupillage interviews is tell me a time when it all went wrong Uh, and it's very telling how a person can describe how they pick themselves up from that experience Uh, and so it going wrong as well as it going right is a a really good thing to experience I think one of the other things I might like to say is that quite a lot of people I know will um, do lots of advocacy and actually discover it's not for them and that's absolutely fine (laughs) you might as well discover early (laughs) discover it early yeah and uh, and so testing it and finding it's not for you is is a great thing Brilliant. Thank you so much. That was that was really wonderful. Pleasure. Thanks, James. Master Hochhauser, who is recently described as the best trial lawyer in the business, talked to us this episode about advocacy. First point to remember is that every person who wishes to be an advocate will start off being unqualified. When you come to an inn, Nobody expects you to be a polished, experienced advocate because you won't be. We all have to start somewhere. And I think it's important always to remember that. So when you have an opportunity, either at school, in your sixth form, or in your university, you should look for opportunities where you can get good practice. And that can be in a whole variety of different means the most conventional of which is debating. So if you join a debating society at school or a university, that will give you a great opportunity to argue a point of view, to try to persuade the audience to your way of thinking. That can become more refined as you go into a more specialist field, such as studying law. And you will probably, as part of your course, have to take an advocacy exam in some form of moot. People often ask, what are moots? And um, very simply, these are mock cases and appeals. They require participants to argue a point of law. So you won't be dealing with witness evidence, but you will be dealing with discrete points of law and it will be one on which there will be a series of conflicting precedents generally and you will be asked to argue a particular point of view 
And what is interesting is that very often people who argue the losing case were the most powerful advocates. So don't think just because you've got a winning argument, you are necessarily going to be the better advocate. The two do not necessarily go hand in hand. And it will often be the first opportunity for students to to learn the language of the court. May it please your honour, I appear on behalf of... And it's, it's very interesting because people always ask me, and I've done this job for over 40 years, are you nervous still when you go to court? And the answer is, I absolutely am. And, you know, we live in a... Uh, our profession is full of, of calling into to doubt your ability to continue to, to meet the needs of the profession. But those magic words all rise as the judge comes into court. Suddenly the curtain is up and you just, you, the, the whole thing takes on a new meaning. And it still happens, and the nerves disappear. I mean, they used to say about Laurence Olivier that he was sick before he went on stage at the beginning of every performance. And if you don't worry about the performance you're about to give, then I think that your days of an advocate are over. That's the, the same is said of Adele as well, that she's often sick before she goes <laughs> on stage. Well, there we are, a contemporary example. <laughs> There are countless mooting competitions taking place throughout England and Wales. You should be able to find one through your inn, your university or your law school. Here, Master Hockhauser tells us about a particularly prestigious mooting competition that takes place annually. Essex Court has a national mooting competition that it has um, done as a sponsorship of the moot that was commenced by the English Speaking Union. It is now known as the English Speaking Union hyphen Essex Court Chambers National Mooting Competition. Um, it is based in the UK and it is open to all universities or higher education colleges that are involved in teaching law in the United Kingdom. Um, each team is comprised of two students and uh, you have rounds that are conducted over the winter and the spring. And you have semi-finals at Dartmouth House, uh, which is the headquarters of the ESU in Mayfair, and the grand final in the Royal Courts of Justice. It is a very prestigious um, moot. The winning team is awarded what is known as the Silver Mace Trophy and takes away £1,000 for the victor uh, and a further £1,000 for their educational establishment. The runners-up get £750 each, as does their educational institution. Um, and the four finalists all get offered mini-pupilages at Essex Court Chambers. I mean, one thing I would say is that if you are going to put the, to, uh, a reference to a national moot that you have done, it is a good idea, particularly if it's one that's not particularly well-known, to give an idea of how many competitors there, there were. So if you've reached the semi-final and you are you know, the last four of uh, 100 people, that's a lot better than being the last four of 25 or 26. Yes. So I think I think going back to something that you said earlier, Master Hockhauser, it, it seems to me that practice is one of the really important points that you've, you've mentioned because the moot that you've just described, as you say, extremely prestigious, probably a good idea to get under your belt a number of, of, of sort of trial moots before you decide to try and enter that one. Have you got any other avenues that you can think of for people beyond debating and mooting? Well, pro bono work is a very good way to get some form of um, advocacy experience. And it's important to remember that advocacy experience isn't just oral advocacy. Written advocacy is very important, particularly if you're going to go into civil litigation. Yes. Because so much of of the work that we do is written argument and time is becoming increasingly curtailed for the amount of oral submissions that you are able to make Um, and the ability to express yourself succinctly and persuasively is very important. I mean, never underestimate the importance of that initial skeleton argument that you file with the court. I mean, I am at the moment sitting as a judge uh, in the Chancery Division this week, and I have just been given papers for my hearing for tomorrow, and the first thing that I do is to reach for the two skeleton arguments. And it's your route map into the case. You know, judges have a very short time 
to prepare for a hearing. And what they want to do is to be told by the advocate, what are the issues? What is your position on the issues? And what are the documents that I need to read to bring myself up to speed to be able to decide that? There are some universities that encourage students as undergraduates to participate in law centres or law clinics that they themselves establish. Yes. Uh, I'm, uh, I did my undergraduate degree at Bristol University and they have established a, a substantial law clinic where students as part of their course, one of their modules, would be working in that clinic and it will give them practical experience of advising people on real life problems with the benefit of legally qualified people who will supervise them and that will give you an opportunity to interact with somebody who's got a legal problem to um, advise them on the course that you want them to take or you would like them to take to draft letters and to prepare for hearings and that's a very good way of getting into um, pro bono work with a view to advocacy, both written and oral. But obviously you will be supervised whilst you do that. You, know, you won't be let loose um, without any kind of, of assistance. And I think the thing to do is to remember when you are doing pro bono work that there will be times when you will need to have help from people who've got more experience than you do. Um, through is a very good way of um, becoming an advocate. Yes. But it does require quite a lot of time commitment. And you will obviously be, you will observe a number of cases before you will embark on any yourself. But I mean, it's a brilliant way of becoming an advocate. Master Hockhauser, going back to something you said about the law clinic at Bristol University, pro bono opportunities like this are useful not only because it enables a candidate to sort of tick a box and show that they've got some advocacy experience, but it actually allows them to understand from their own work and their own experience what it's like to be a barrister. What are the challenges? What is it like talking to a client who's reluctant to take your advice? How do you find a way of explaining a complicated piece of law to somebody for whom English is not their first language, for example? And so it gives a candidate, would you agree, material to illustrate examples that they might, they might want to provide in an interview context. So it's valuable from that point of view as well. We live in an era where you are called upon all the time to demonstrate your competences by reference to evidence-based examples. And so, for example, when I am writing references for experienced advocates who wish to apply for SILP, you have to give concrete examples of why this person is a good advocate. Um, if they've appeared in front of you, the points that they took or didn't take that impressed you. And sometimes the points that you don't take are as important as the points that you do. Silence occasionally can be extremely powerful advocacy. Also, um, if you are being asked at an interview, could you give us an example of where you encountered a difficult issue and how you addressed it? Um, dealing with advising a client who perhaps didn't fully understand the predicament in which they were in mm. because of um, unfamiliarity with a language, for example. Yes. Um, that would be a very good example of how you dealt with that and how you tried and strived to make the client fully understand the nature of the situation. So I think there are so many benefits that one can derive from dealing with real-life problems and advising in that situation. Um, all I would caution against is beware of getting out of your depth because you should acknowledge your limitations as much as it's very good for you to have this. There are times where you will need to have the benefit of others who are more experienced. Well, that's something that... that holds true for the rest of your practice really doesn't it i agree exactly as you've described happened to me when i was applying for um, a scholarship with the inn i had done some free representation unit work and one of my clients had told me um, how completely incapacitated she was she could barely walk she couldn't lift her arms and after i left the conference i saw her 
just about skipping down the road and I had to contact her again and say I'm afraid I've seen something that was different from what you told me in conference and that means that either you can tell me something that is consistent with what I've seen or I'm going to be professionally embarrassed and I won't be able to act for you and she made it very clear she didn't want me within 100 miles of her tribunal and I I recounted this story in my scholarship interview and I could see that it was really engaging the panel. And at the end of my answer, the next panellist said, the the question we were going to ask you next is, can you give an example of when you've been tough? But we can see that you've already done that. (laughs) So I think that goes to show just how beneficial doing that pro bono work is. It it helps all sorts of other things that you aren't necessarily expecting, like helps in scholarship interviews, it helps in pupillage interviews. But also it's a really wonderful experience and particularly can give you a real taste of how fabulous it is to do the advocacy on behalf of someone. I think also it gives you a very um, powerful example of how ethical issues can arise in practice when you are called upon to make a judgment call and it's a very important one because telling a client that you're going to withdraw from a case because you are professionally embarrassed is a very it's a significant decision yes and it to do it when you are at such a inexperienced stage requires courage And that is something that you really don't learn until you're in a real-life situation. Absolutely. And I went back and got a lot of advice before I picked up the phone to make that call. (laughs) So I was very nervous about doing so. Thank you very much, Master Hockhauser. I first met Alex Robson of Littleton Chambers across a moot courtroom in the Rosamund Smith mooting competition. He soundly beat me and went on to win the competition. So we asked him to come and tell us a little about mooting. I wonder if you can tell our listeners about mooting. Yes, mooting, starting from the basics, is um, a law mock trial, as most of your listeners will know very well. And um, one of the main advantages of mooting is that you have an opportunity to practice your advocacy skills um, on a legal problem um, against some people who are often of your level of um, knowledge and seniority, students of a similar stage, and it's a competitive environment. And so you're judged not on um, whether or not the point you're making is actually correct as a matter of law, but on the skills with which you deploy your legal submissions. And so mooting is a fantastic way and one of the rare ways of being able to do a dry run at being a barrister before you've actually secured a pupillage. So tell us a bit more about the Rosamond Smith mooting competition. Is that that? Am I right in thinking that's run by the Middle Temple? Yes, that's right. It is run by the Middle Temple. And is, is it the one? Is it the one that you have to do the moot after dinner in hall in front of all the assembled that is guests the one, that who've is all the one. had plenty to drink? Yeah, that's right. I think the two main features of it are one. There's a cost of doing well in that you have to do exactly that and do the final in front of everyone in hall. But there's a great benefit in winning as well because you get sent away to North America for an um, intensive mooting experience or jolly trip, depending on how you look at it, to moot against some uh, North Americans. Some of our listeners know that they need to do it, but probably feel a little hesitant about the best way to embark upon their mooting career. Have you got any advice for them? Yeah, I think the first piece of advice I'd give is that those sorts of emotions, those anxieties about how you start doing it, um, and indeed the bigger question as to when you'll be, whether you'll be any good at it, are perfectly natural. And everybody feels them. Uh, and the only way you get over them is to actually go out and have a go. I think you can take comfort from the fact that everyone, when they're starting out on their mooting careers, is, is pretty awful. <laughs> <laughs> and it takes you one or two or three or maybe ten goes uh, until you find your feet and you learn how it works. So first of all, don't let those feelings of anxiety put you off. After all, this is the career you want to do and you've got to take the plunge at some point in, in being a legal advocate. Uh, the more practical point about how you actually go about starting mooting, uh, I think that the normal way of going about it is to look into mooting societies that you'll have at your university or your bar, bar school or your law school uh, and all Almost all of them have them. Uh, If yours, for some freakish reason, doesn't have one, then uh, set one up 
and I'm sure you're in, um, or perhaps some other sort of mentoring organisation would be able to help you to set one up. Um, it doesn't require a huge amount of work, it just requires a bit of organisation. So I think your first port of call is, is whatever institution you are currently studying at or are shortly to study at. And, and so people should just jump in really and, and as with a lot of things, learn from their mistakes. I think that's absolutely right because that, that's exactly what will happen when you start off your um, career at the bar. And, <laughs> what, um, mistakes? <laughs> best to get practice in early. Super. Alex Robson, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Pupillage Podcast. Thank you. We had some more on this subject from Richard O'Brien of 4 New Square. Richard O'Brien, welcome to the Pupillage Podcast. Thank you for coming to talk to us today. Not at all. Could you tell our listeners, please, first of all, a little bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, I'm a barrister at 4 New Square. Uh, I was called to the bar in 2005, so I've been doing the job for 13 years now. And I mainly practice in public law which means cases for and against the government. Did you do mooting? I did. Um, I, f- my first ever moot was, I think, in my first week of studying law at City University. And I think there's one point I'd really like to get across, is that you must make your mistakes very early. And I think my experience um, speaks vividly of the importance of doing that. I... Uh, mooted, as I say, a, a week into my course on a topic on which I had the only the very slightest of uh, grasps, which was the law of defamation, which I'd had one lecture the day before. Uh, I was against someone who, though being at the same early stage in her legal uh, education, was shockingly good, uh, and I really wasn't. And uh, it, I went down in flames, um, but I'm absolutely <laughs> delighted that I did it, because, frankly... I don't remember an advocacy experience that was ever as intimidating or difficult again, and I would include going to court uh, as part of my practice in that. But it was, if you like, a safe space in which to make your mistakes and my mistakes. Um, And so I would encourage anyone thinking, I don't know if that's for me, to just think, well, and then it definitely is for you. Uh, If you want to be a barrister, you need to get some experience and you need to do it before... You go to pupillage interviews and you make some of the mistakes that you would otherwise have ironed out. You, you remind me of a mistake that I very narrowly dodged. One of my friends, my first week of doing law, also at, at City, when I was starting the GDL, said, come along and watch a moot that I'm doing. And I hadn't ever seen a moot, and I don't think I, to my shame, had even been in court, um, certainly not in a, in a senior court. And I was absolutely stunned by the the formality of the occasion, I appear on behalf of the prosecution or whatever it was, I hadn't thought about any of that language Mm. at all. And had I not gone along and watched that moot, I similarly would have gone down in probably worse flames than you had. Mm. Mm. Well, that's a good idea then, to perhaps go and uh, have a watch of a moot before you even start to do it yourself. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And I would just add um, a tip that I learned very early on, which I still try and practice now, is just to see the courtroom or the room in which you're going to do the advocacy because that takes an unknown away so that you're able, in, when, in the run-up to doing your advocacy, to imagine yourself there and there isn't a shock when you get there and it's a dank basement or you know, a, a room with 100 people watching you. You know that and you're, you're already expecting it. And I certainly try and do that if I'm going to an unfamiliar court, even now. So would you say, Richard, that it's important as you've said, to practice so that you can um, make your mistakes in a safe space and, and also you can work out whether, whether this is something you actually enjoy or not. Uh, absolutely. You, if you find that after four or five times, let's say, that it, it is a deeply unpleasant experience and there's no upward curve in your enjoyment of it, then you, you, you've, that's at least a sign that you're probably going down the wrong path because the job of a barrister, I mean, it speaks for itself, but it is at least as much about advocacy as it is about being a good lawyer. Uh, you can't struggle through as a barrister if you don't actually get pleasure and certainly can't if you suffer from doing uh, advocacy. And so you, you, you need to find out at an early stage if it's the right job for you. Richard, you mentioned the free representation unit. Have you got any other examples of um, places that our listeners can look to for advocacy experience? 
Uh, I know of the school exclusions project, which didn't exist, or I don't think certainly wasn't as high profile when I was studying, but uh, is a real success story now, whereby um, people, students, and really school children can be represented in um, disciplinary boards, I suppose, the way you would describe it, in their schools to, to help try to prevent them being excluded from school. And it's a very worthwhile project that I think I understand was set up by some barristers. Um, and I think there's quite a lot of demand for work because there's yes. a lot of students facing expulsion or uh, um, exclusion. Thank so you. that's something I'd That's recommend. a great tip. So I suppose the benefits then of, of all of this sort of advocacy experience, it, first of all, it gives you a, a test to see if this is the profession for you. It gives you some CV points, something to impress a pupillage committee with um, but also you can actually do some good for mankind by doing this pro bono work absolutely um, I, I mean I think in terms of the improvement that you, you can get from your advocacy as well it's important to state you become the speed at which your advocacy improves is much higher at the beginning than it is a year or two later so I for instance now thankfully I'm on the other side of the fence and have judged some moots and I've seen people with exceptional potential make very silly mistakes which I can then help them iron out and they become uh, much noticeably better as a result and they are as basic as somebody with excellent spoken skills will nonetheless spend the 10 minutes of their moot sort of dancing from side to side doing a kind of <laughs> tango um, uh, involuntarily and unconsciously because they're nervous or because they haven't quite realised that that is something they need to bring under control, but actually they can very easily bring it under control. So you can go from quite an unimpressive mooter to at least an average or a good mooter within two or three appearances. Much better to have done that, as I say, in the safe space at university than only once you've started pupillage, where you may well have some assessed moots and you want to have got rid of those problems by then. I suppose that has the the benefit also that progress that you've just described it has the benefit of providing a confidence boost as well when you can see the you can see yourself oh I've actually improved and you know what maybe maybe I'm okay at this. Uh, absolutely. And of course if some of our listeners out there have finished university and are thinking oh no I've missed that opportunity there are the inns some chambers run mooting competitions there are other mooting competitions that they can sign up for so it's not too late. Absolutely not. It's never too late. It probably requires some application on your part if you haven't got that much on your CV and you have to balance that with your studies. But one of the most important things to have on your CV is advocacy experience. So it's not wasted time to do it. Richard O'Brien, thank you very much for speaking to us today. Our next guest told us how getting advocacy experience in the form of debating had taken him all over the world. Bennett Brandreth QC spoke of his passion for the golden art of enchanting the soul and how you can practice your advocacy just by reading a newspaper. Bennett Brandreth QC, welcome to the Pupilage podcast. Thank you for coming to talk to us today. What a delight to be here. (laughs) Could you start, please, Bennett, by telling our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? I am uh, a barrister. The QC probably gives that away. And I have been for 20 years. I specialise in intellectual property rights and uh, have done for my whole career. Although I did do uh, some work for the government as one of the Attorney General's panel of counsel. Uh, And I do a lot of other things in the background, some of which may be relevant to the discussion I understand we're going to have today, because I'm very interested in uh, classical rhetoric. And that is the art of persuasion. It's the understanding of how language moves the minds of others. And in that capacity, I train actors and I give workshops to people like the Royal Shakespeare Company, the Donmar Warehouse and and the like. And I'm also an advocacy trainer for the Middle Temple. Fantastic. Well, let's kick off with that, because, of course, advocacy is not just about debating, mooting, pro bono work. Advocacy really is about the art of persuasion. So perhaps you can tell our listeners about some of the experience that you've had that is perhaps a little outside the ordinary. Well, uh, for me, advocacy is something that creeps into every aspect of our lives once you realise that it is about persuasion, because so much of our lives is about interacting with other people. And at that point, necessarily you're wondering about how your words are working on other people 
for me, the, the key skill of advocacy isn't actually the one that people usually think of, which is the ability to speak beautifully and smoothly in front of a judge. The skill of advocacy is the skill of judgment. And as barristers, that's what we aim to be uh, delivering as our, our unique selling point. It's not so much our extreme knowledge of the law. It's not so much our ability to uh, cram a lot of information in at short notice. It's the ability to know what matters and what in any particular circumstance will be persuasive. And that skill of judgment, I think, is, is what makes the, the British barrister so uh, useful as part of the legal team. Uh, in terms of advocacy experience, my advocacy experience began as uh, a debater, a school debater, and I did that uh, also at university. You can tell immediately how cool I was as a young man. <laughs> uh, but in fact, uh, it, what you probably didn't realise, or I didn't realise until I got to university, was that there is a, a, an international debating circuit that you can get onto. And when I got to uh, Cambridge, I was able to uh, go to competitions all around the world. In fact, one of the first international competitions they had in South Africa after the end of apartheid was a debating competition. And it was um, an amazing experience. When I came to Middle Temple, I was able to persuade them to sponsor me to go debating at other debating competitions. I went to the Philippines, I went to uh, Sydney uh, in 2000. So um, that, that was my start. And uh, I then ended up working uh, with actors. That's another aspect of, of my sort of side projects. And through that, discovered that they had a kind of ignorance of this great area that we at the bar know so much about that was actually very valuable to them. And that, that development uh, then grew and grew until I'm now sort of juggling these two roles, really. On one hand, rhetoric coach, on the other hand, barrister. And, and for our mature students who are listening to this or people who are coming from a second career, they needn't feel that they've missed those opportunities to try debating and mooting because, of course, you can do it through the inn and elsewhere. Yeah. Beatrice and I share a, a bit of a love of reading books about advocacy. And, of course, advocacy is a practical skill. But do you think that there's value for, for our listeners at home who are perhaps thinking, well, I'd like to know a bit more about it, to reading those sorts of books? I think huge value in that sort of thing. When I was a young barrister, I was lucky enough to win the Richard Ducan Memorial Prize for Excellence in Advocacy, which I thought was a great feather in my cap. Although I discovered about three years into my tenancy at my chambers that they didn't actually realise that I'd won it. <laughs> but I, I also read his book, The Art of the Advocate, which I think has stood the test of time. Yes, I have it on my shelf. And uh, it, there's no uh, better thing than actual experience. But to hear the advice and wisdom of, of others is, is a great advantage. And of course, to go back to my uh, love of rhetoric, the great Cicero... He used to say that actually the best way to become be better as, a, as an orator was to write speeches, to practice going through those issues of judgment. And uh, there are lots of ways in which one can achieve that kind of experience. So just thinking out loud, if you read a newspaper and you come across an opinion piece, just try on the spot to think of three things that you would say against that uh, argument. And often it's better uh, if it's an argument that you were inclined to be believe or agree with to begin with, to try and find where the flaws might uh, be in that sort of thing. If you're interested in a particular area of the law and a judgment comes out, very useful practice to maybe write a blog piece on it or, or just a quick summary of that judgment because a great part of advocacy is about explaining, almost in a way, translating English into English, taking a complicated idea and making it clear. Particularly in my area of the law, intellectual property, a lot of the subject matter is highly technical. And one of the tasks of the advocate is to take the complexity of the technical material and then explain it, not unfortunately simplifying it, because often the important part is in the complexity, but in making it clear what exactly is going on and, and how best to understand it. So all of these things are very valuable because ultimately the oral part, the bit where you're speaking, is just the very tip of the spear. It's everything behind that that's the most important. Bennett, I feel that our, our listeners may be surprised to hear you mention that you ever suffer from nerves. You speak so fluently. Um, do you have any tips to help people handle those nerves when it comes to advocacy experience, when it comes to interviews? How can they, how can they tackle their nerves? Well, the first thing I would say is not to, not to fear their nerves, in the sense not to worry that they're going to be overwhelmed by them your nervousness is there for the very good reason that you care about the thing that is about to happen. Uh, it would be much worse for you, I suspect, in whatever scenario you're about to go in, if you just didn't care and therefore felt no nerves at all. 
Uh, beyond that, the kind of things that I always rely on are, are age-old pieces of advice. Take a big breath before you begin. Take a moment just to uh, absorb what's going on. I know it's become a bit of a cliche, but I actually find a lot of those mindfulness exercises very helpful and a bit of meditation has never uh, gone astray. Partly because I think what you're wanting is that sense that I understand great sportsmen have. I think they call it time on the ball. So it's not just that you've got, as it were, the ball at your feet, but you've also got the mental capacity not only to keep the ball by your feet, but also to be looking up around you and seeing what's going on on the rest of the field. And by having that kind of mindfulness, by being very present in the moment, you can obtain a level of detachment from the nerves and the excitement of what's going on that allows you to, to sense the room, to sense where the argument is going, and that can be very helpful uh, as, as well. The last thing I would say is take as many props as you can. I always, to this day, write slow down at the top of my speaking note because I know from experience that nerves will make me rush, as probably I am rushing now. Um, and if I have a little prompt there, a little mental reminder, that helps as well. So it's all the usual stuff. There's no surprises there. People have been overcoming nerves for thousands of years. You will too. I think you make a very important point, if, if, you, if you don't mind me saying so, Bennett, that you should be prepared to be nervous. That's to say, expect it. Just think, oh, well, that's me being nervous and carry on. And, and that if you already accept that that's an inevitable part of it and a natural part of it, then already it's perhaps a little less off-putting and a little less frightening. Sure, sure. I think I think that's uh, good advice for advocacy, but also good advice for life. I mean, one of the things that I found disappointingly true is that I am much more important in my own mental uh, play <laughs> than I turn out to be in anybody else's <laughs> mental play. And, and from my perspective, when I'm feeling very nervous, the only thing I think is that everybody else in the room can see how nervous I am and they're worried about me and they think that I'm going to have a terrible time of it. None of them care about how nervous I am. And indeed, once I get going, I find that uh, those nerves are lost in a more of a sense of adrenaline and excitement and a desire to, to sell the argument. For that reason, perhaps one piece of good advice that I've thought of recently is to have a kind of little set piece right at the beginning of whatever you're going to say because that first minute is the minute where you're adjusting from the nerves into the flow of the speech and if you banked that first minute if it's just something you do every time and you know it works and it's all going to be fine then that gives you a little way of getting through that initial period so that's a possibility as well. That's a great tip. Bennett Brandreth, QC, thank you very much for talking to us today. A great pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. We heard some more about this topic from Michael Harwood and heard about some of his volunteering work. Certainly, I think it's quite common for students to struggle a bit with getting advocacy experience because they're in the position that if, if they're not yet a fully-fledged advocate, then mm. some things not available to them. Have you got any tips or ideas to help our listeners who want to find opportunities to practice their advocacy? Mm. Um, I suppose the first one is as a more general one, is to try and think about advocacy in its broadest possible sense. I think when we talk about advocacy, particularly as aspiring barristers, the temptation is to think about actually sitting in a court or tribunal and making oral submissions. And that obviously is the main way that we are advocates. But advocacy in its broadest sense is just really about the art of being persuasive. So try and interpret it in its broadest possible way. And if you do that, you'll probably find that there are quite a lot of roles that you um, you can undertake where you are acting as an advocate on behalf of somebody else, being required to be persuasive, whether that's orally or even or even providing sort of written advocacy. Um, in terms of my own experience, um, when prior to and when I, when I was a student, um, I found the opportunities offered by organisations like the Free Representation Unit to be very valuable. Um, and that is a way of undertaking some pro bono work um, advising and sometimes representing people um, in either the employment area or as I did in social security um, and I think that's a really valuable opportunity because they give you a lot, a huge amount of training on what is quite a complex um, area particularly social security I think um, and then yeah and then if you're sufficiently uh, dedicating and dedicated and, and willing to you can then pick up 
um, some of these cases that, that come in. And as I say, it may end up, you may end up going to the Social Security Tribunal and, and making representations. And it's, it's hugely valuable, um, both in terms of finding out your own style and, and improving on your advocacy skills, but also just getting a feel for what the sort of courtroom setting is like. I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the free representation unit, or um, FRU, as it's sometimes called, because I think this is one of the very best ways um, that students can practice their advocacy skills in a real-life context. It gives students the opportunity to learn how to hold conferences, but also to do written and oral advocacy in a way that actually matters. Mm. Um, you yourself, I think, did have a lot of through experience. Um, one thing that we see on application forms a lot is, are the words through trained or through qualified, <laughs> which tends to mean that somebody has undergone part or all of the through training but has not actually taken any cases. Yes. Is that something you're familiar with? Yes. And, and I think that comes back to the wider point about actually, A, learning to be selective about the types of things that you're putting down on your CVs and your applications and actually generally thinking about really what is what is this adding to um, the picture that these people are getting of reading it and and um, my instincts are the same as yours when you see someone who says that they're sort of free qualified but they're not talking about the experiences and skills that they're getting from attending conferences meeting clients doing oral advocacy then if they're not really getting any of those, then the, the whole idea of having done the training is really pretty, uh, pretty meaningless. And as I say, it, it's about being selective and also thinking about what that says about you, know, you as, a, as a candidate. There, there may be listeners out there who have undergone their free training, um, but are very anxious about taking on a real case mm. because, of course, this is somebody's life. Mm. Particularly with something like Social Security, this is an incredibly important area for that client. Is there anything that you would say to reassure those people who might be hesitating before taking a first case? Mm. Well, ultimately, it's th- um, organisations like FRU, which is an e- extremely reputable organisation, wouldn't be putting you in that sort of situation unless they were satisfied that the type the type and quality of training that you get given and the support network that they provide isn't going to be adequate so so that's the first thing just to sort of i think sort of settle your mind a little bit but secondly there is obviously as i say a huge network there through has its own um, employees who are incredibly experienced, but also this very substantial network of volunteers. Um, and as well as obviously doing their own work, their role is going to be to provide support to people um, who are unsure. So, I mean, and this really applies to anything, but if you're ever unsure, always ask for help. And 99.9% of the time you'll be given it. Um, but, yeah, I can understand that it is quite daunting if you've, you've never done that sort of thing before. But, um, they, as I say, they provide a lot of training and a huge amount of support. And once you've got into that, uh, if you're suitably well prepared, once you've got into that sort of environment, then you'll find you pick it up quite quickly. I think also it's, it, it's worth saying that for the client, certainly in my experience of providing assistance pro bono, uh, that client is incredibly grateful mm, to you mm. for the help that you're rendering. And uh, to be honest, they're extremely pleased mm. on the whole to have, uh, I've found, to, to to have your assistance. So you kind of need to think, I think, of, of the person that you're helping rather yes. than thinking of yourself. And um, whilst, of course, it's understandable that you might be a bit intimidated, think what it's like for that person who has no law degree, who is very much in need of your help, and perhaps focus on, on them rather than on yourself. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I, I remember one of my first clients doing free social security work and English was her second language and she, didn't, she wasn't able to read English. And the fact that I could read and understand the application forms that she needed to complete, the documents that she needed to read for her hearing, that alone, before I even got into any of the law, was enormously helpful to her and gave me confidence that I was adding some sort of value to, to her, the process that she was going through. One other thing you have on your own CV, which I think our listeners will be interested to hear about, is the National Centre for Domestic Violence. Can you explain what that is? Um, so this was an opportunity I got involved with through um, through my law school, um, the variety of sort of pro bono opportunities they provide. Um, but their main role is to provide support in a number of ways to those who have been victims of domestic violence and are going through 
the court system um, and for similar reasons that people who um, are engaged through through these tend to be people who are very unfamiliar with the whole process um, and it's really about providing them with some support and assurance and so broadly speaking the sort of activities you do as a volunteer are number one is um, helping to draft witness statements so um, I should add these by the way these are all generally in advance of um, hearings for non-molestation orders so um, one of the things that's needed for those types of hearings is um, some written evidence so a witness statement usually an account um, and so a lot of it is really is, is listening um, and helping to develop a, a witness statement to submit at that hearing um, but then the, the sort of secondary function of the volunteer role um, is uh, or can be um, going along to those hearings and not actually providing any representations yourself, but just being someone who's there at court and can explain what's going to happen, the sort of things that the judge might say, what's going to be required of you and that sort of thing. Matt Aliwalia was one of the first of the Public Law Project's pupils. He will give you some ideas for acquiring advocacy experience other than through mooting and debating. Look for areas of experience in your normal day-to-day job that may not necessarily be strictly legal would be the way I I would advise approaching it and the way I try to sort of um, tackle that as an issue because not everybody will be lucky enough to go straight from law school to pupillage and there might be a gap and where you're you're working in not necessarily a strictly legal field um, and so. For me, it was um, I, I, I end up getting quite a lot of practice just from working in retail and um, selling running running shoes, uh, which ended up the way. Well, the way I pitched it, at least on the application form, was that it, ended, it was a way of applying specialist knowledge of a niche area and then trying to persuade somebody to do something. So, trying to persuade somebody that they wanted to buy whatever I was selling them, um, which you know it's a good thing to be able to practice it's a good way of um finding out how to tailor your particular pitch to different audiences and different styles or different um you know different different customers want different things for example in that context and you know you have having to work out what's going to work for that particular person is a useful and transferable skill that will do you good in, in advocacy and practice so that's a really good tip then to to look hard at what you might be doing even if it isn't obviously something that has a legal angle and look at the skills that barristers use in their everyday lives and try and try and see what you can find there yeah because yes absolutely because i think ultimately the your your application will be a good one if you can show that you have thought about and have understood what the day-to-day life of a barrister involves and then demonstrating that you can do those things. And so advocacy obviously is a really big part of it, but sometimes it can apply to actually just being able to build up an expertise in an area. Um, and obviously if you can combine those two things, like even if it's in, in a non-legal example like retail, then that's great. Um, but in another way you might be able to do that is if, you have, um, if you're working for an NGO or a charity, for example, um, which has a particular focus area or, or topic area, there might be ways in which you can do some training on that particular topic either for your own colleagues or for for other organizations as the opportunities come up and you know trying to make sure that you get yourself out there as a good trainer and as a good teacher is also a useful way of practicing your presentation and your advocacy so looking for opportunities where you can introduce into your working life uh, some some form of public speaking yeah absolutely yeah. Matt, do you have any other examples from, from your own experience of where you, some unusual corners where you managed to find some advocacy experience? Um, I'm not sure how, I'm not sure about necessarily unusual areas, but the way, the way in which I got most, the way in which I sort of cut my teeth, I suppose, in terms of advocacy was doing lots of social security tribunals uh, in, in uh, a previous employment before pupillage. So I used to work for a charity called Z2K, which is a, um, welfare rights and housing charity based in Westminster and a big part of that job was representing people in social security tribunals um, so I was usually in the tribunal once or twice a month um, representing people mainly on disability related benefits so ESA and PIP and occasionally universal credit appeals as well and that was a really good way of getting used to being in that environment and also getting used to um, trying to help a client through that 
environment because that's another part of advocacy. It's not just about persuasion of the tribunal for your client's cases, but it's also about making sure that your client's case is the one that's being presented, not yours, which means that your client handling skills have to be very good. And that was a really good way of, of practicing that. Brilliant. Thank you, Matt Alawalua, for talking to the Pupillage podcast. Thank you for listening to the Pupillage podcast with us, Beatrice Collier and Georgina Wolfe, brought to you by Middle Temple. Production support and music by Alex Dopirala. Huge thanks to the wonderful team here at Middle Temple. James Rogerson for helping us with the logistics, Darren Latty for coffees and pastries, and Colin Davidson for his enthusiasm, encouragement and awe-inspiring little black book. We'd also like to thank all our clerks and our senior clerk, Mark Waller in particular, who have not disowned us for sneaking off down the road to Middle Temple for recording sessions. Please check out the show notes for more on our guests, links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode. If you have questions you would like answered in future episodes or want to give us some feedback, please email us at pupillagepodcast at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast. Proper preparation prevents a poor performance. You know, there is a lot of work involved in what we do, even in an interview for pupillage. Yes, I've heard it said that there are three golden rules of advocacy. Preparation, preparation and preparation. I agree.